T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. It was 75 years ago this summer that World War II officially ended. September 2nd, 1945. Eleven men representing the defeated Empire of Japan. And while the official ceremony took place in early September, word of the surrender was announced on August the 14th, forever known as VJ Day. I have received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government in reply to the message forwarded to that government by the Secretary of State on August 11th. 16 million Americans served during that war. History remembers them as the greatest generation. You could say they're ordinary men who were called upon to do extraordinary things. Uh, What did they do? They basically rescued the world from war, uh, from from tyranny. This week on 880 In-Depth, we hear the stories of a handful of these heroes and lessons that should resonate as we battle an enemy of a different kind today. I'm Tim Sheld from WCBS News Radio 880, and meet Sean Adams. Tim, check, check. Hey, Sean, how are you? Ooh, it's hot. <laughs> Sean is a WCBS News Radio 880 award-winning reporter who loves meeting people and loves telling their stories. And to him, nothing compares to the stories he tells of the greatest generation. That's why we asked him to share some of his favorite stories. Today, he introduces us to five of the greatest generation during this important week. For as long as I've known you, Sean, you've been attracted to these stories of these men who came from what we call the greatest generation. Why? What is it about these these men? You know, if I I had to uh, answer that honestly, it's a very personal answer, and uh, the explanation is 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 simple. Uh, These men remind me, in so many ways, of my own grandfathers men of uh, impeccable character, uh, just wonderful human beings whom I admire. And when I speak with these veterans today, it's almost as if I'm still able to converse with my grandfathers who are both gone. And uh, it just, it, it fills me with such a wonderfully warm feeling to know that there are these exemplary human beings among us, still among us, and we are lucky, we're fortunate to have them at this age. They're in their 90s, some of them are uh, 100 plus, 
and uh, you know if you want to describe them you could say they're ordinary men who were called upon to do extraordinary things uh, what did they do they basically rescued the world from war uh, from from tyranny uh, they rescued humanity from this uh, this hatred and and blatant aggression uh, and you know we always refer to what Tom Brokaw set of, of this generation, the greatest generation. Now, these men will downplay that, they'll push it off, uh, but they are great. And part of what makes them great is that humility, uh, their lack of ego. Uh, they are very humble. You go into their homes, you know, there's always a, a little corner of, of one of the rooms where uh, there will be uh, plaques, uh, little frames with uh, commendations or uh, medal ins uh, medals insignia you know something that's uh, devoted to uh, what they did their part in this uh, in this uh, great uh, this great fight for humanity and uh, you know some of them you'll you'll see them on the street and you'll know what they did because uh, they'll have a hat on or a jacket or a t-shirt identifying them as a world war 2 uh, veteran and uh, they, they do live with it every day and they truly appreciate it when people come up and talk to them about it uh, and say thank you a simple gesture really goes a long way for these men Sean this week uh, you prepared the stories of five uh, men in particular uh, I'd love to be able to go over each of them and and um, you know hear from them uh, in their own words about um, what they went through and what they contributed to become part of the greatest generation um, you want to start with um, a guy you know real well uh, from Westchester, uh, Chick Galella. Armando Chick Galella is 99 years old. A great way to describe him, he is tough and he is tender. He's both. Uh, this is a guy who, if the job has to get done, he gets it done. Uh, but he cares uh, intensely about, about all people. And he's lived a life of service, really, uh, you know, not just in the war, but afterward in his community in Sleepy Hollow, uh, he held many positions where he was helping his uh, community. He, his story is remarkable. He was uh, in the military. He was in the Army, uh, the, uh, the Signal Corps. Uh, he was there from the beginning. He was there up until the end. I mean, a big chunk of his life was occupied by, by World War II. Uh, he was, uh, he was, he's a Pearl Harbor survivor. He was uh, stationed at Hickam Airfield, uh, adjacent to uh, Pearl Harbor, so he, he survived that. Uh, he moved around the Pacific after that. Uh, Tinian, uh, he, Okinawa, you'll hear him talk about Okinawa. And, you know, everything that he saw and experienced, uh, it, it shaped his life. It stays with him. He thinks, you'll hear him talk about uh, a buddy of his. He was at uh, Pearl Harbor with a buddy from Sleepy Hollow, and he'll talk about him. Uh, he really feels strongly about Gold Star families, uh, families who've lost uh, someone to, uh, someone who's been killed in combat. And he's going to talk about that, and that's very powerful. And he still, to this day, talks to school children and he has a message for them and he's trying to impart some of the things he's learned over all these years uh, to these young people with the hope that they can 
learn from his experience and, and move forward and take the reins. I have a picture of my friend John. You see him. He got killed that day. What was his name? John Horan. Lived on Beekman Avenue, two blocks from here. I used to go downtown with him because he was six foot two or three and I was small. If I drank, I drank. So we'd take care of each other. So you'd see, he got killed. I have a park named after him, Bob. I'll tell you, I got a park, Horan's Landing. So it's about, and then, so then we, we, we came back. Pearl Harbor was full of smoke. The ships were the ships were in a bay, and because Pearl Harbor was a horseshoe, and the boats, the ships were in the horse. It was devastating. I don't. Know. We, they had the men in the navy had no more chance than a snowball had in hell. They, I will never, never, as long as I live, forgive, forgive, and forget. They had no chance. When your ass is on the line, excuse my expression, that's when it counts. Because they paid. And they had no chance at all. You would cry over the Arizona with eleven hundred bodies down there. You would cry. They had no chance at all. So, I'm sorry. No, don't. <laughs> you don't have to apologize. But I think what you're saying it 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 it, it speaks to this point. All these years later, this is still very much yes. fresh for, yeah. for for anyone who was there. This is still something that, that, that lives with you, doesn't all, it? All my life. Yeah. All my life. You don't even, and I tell Bobby to run it sometimes, it's in my bed. And the Beijo Okinawa. You see the body bags and the back of wrecked bodies. And who are they? Young men. I get very compassionate. 20, 22, 23 years old. Just put them body bags, throw them in the back of the truck. Have a ditch digger. Just dump the bodies. See you. You don't see this. This is. This is. This is. You might be your son or your brother or somebody. And this is what I think about sometimes. Tears come down my eyes. It's you talking about this is very important because people need to remember this because. I try. You have something valuable that young people today need 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 to hear. Is is that? Do you hope that young people hear your well, words? I, oh, I talk to them. You see these these mementos. I talk to high school kids. This is what they give me. I'll show you. And I tell them. And you see that banner there? You know what it is, don't you? Yeah. You know what that is. I bring that to school with me. And I said, Do you know what this represents? They don't know. It's a gold star banner. I go up, you can go up the street and beat me never or go to any street and carry that with you. They don't know. And I honor, and a mother grieves forever. Forever a mother grieves. My son, I lost my son. Till she dies, she grieves. I try, and it bothers me to no end. There's no memorial for the Gold Star Mothers in Washington. Is there? Is there? They're thinking about it. Is there? I don't think so. I don't think so. You've gone back to Pearl Harbor. Yes, I went back to the 75th, yes. And it was very uh, emotional for me. Uh, well, I don't know where I spent my younger days. Uh, the best years of my life. 
was in the Army. I went when I was 19, I came to come out when I was 25. The best years of your life is 25, 20. I lost so much. I lost so much. And I tell my children, enjoy yourself. And I say to the, I enjoy myself. I, I, I have a good time, Bob, I'll tell you. Because the best time of my life. Anybody who served this country deserves all the world in my Anybody. They were, they were willing to put yourself on the line. I respect that. So when you came home and uh, mm-hmm. you moved on with your life, how did that whole experience change you? It changed me. I think I have more of a compassion for people. When you uh, go and talk to those school kids, what, what is the message that you tell them? Uh, the message I give to them is to honor your country. Honor your country. Twelve million Americans lost their lives, so you could be sitting there and get an education. And I also tell them, listen, that's not a pimple on your head, it's a brain. Use it. You're the future generation. Sean, tell me about Dominic Moray uh, and how you came upon meeting him. Dominic Moray is a wonderfully kind man, 95 years old. He lives in Manhattan. He was raised in the Bronx. Italian family. And uh, his Italian, it comes out in him because he he speaks so lovingly about his family and his his mother's cooking, uh, and he's just a, a, he's just a he's a great New York guy, and I met him by chance. I was parked near Columbus Circle one day, and in front of me was a vehicle with a license plate that identified the person as a World War II veteran. So I sat around, I waited, and out comes this man and he has a cap on world war ii veteran so i approached him at a distance this is the time of covid he had a mask i had a mask and i said sir are you a veteran yes i I identify myself i said may i interview you about your service he said absolutely and you know what better time than the present we we talked right there on the street (laughs) and uh, he was wonderful and his story is, is pretty amazing and it ties into local New York history. Uh, he was a radio operator on the USS Vincennes, which was a light cruiser. There was another Vincennes before that uh, that was uh, destroyed, uh, I believe. And uh, this one was a light cruiser. He was a radio operator. He was jotting down numbers and letters. He didn't know what they meant. There was uh, someone else who translated the code, but this was important stuff. These were, or, or, these were orders coming in. Uh, when he was on board his ship, he actually saw kamikazes hit the USS aircraft carrier Intrepid. And he was able to tell that story. Uh, And, you know, we take the Intrepid for granted. It's this wonderful museum on Manhattan's west side, but it's it's remarkable that it's even there, uh, considering what it went through, and considering the fact that uh, many Americans were killed on board the Intrepid. Uh, so Dominic Moray tells that story. He talks about just how proud he is to have been uh, part of uh, uh, the U.S. force, and uh, his story is pretty amazing. We were with the Intrepid when it got hit by a kamikaze. Kamikaze missed our ship, and uh, four of them hit the Intrepid. I saw that that day, and I thought the Intrepid was going down. So many kids lost their lives on that. Can you describe what it looked like when those kamikazes hit? Well, the, uh, just fire and smoke, billows of smoke whenever they hit. And uh, it, it just, uh, it, it's, it, 
you just can't explain it. It's just see the the, the uh, a ship when it gets hit. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you see some of the movies, uh, the ships that get hit, they they explode, they burn, they smoke. It's terrible. And I was fortunate enough to get a few medals. I'm not trying to brag, but I did get a few medals, the Philippine uh, Freedom Medal and a couple other medals that we were uh, that they gave us for serving in the Pacific. But I mean, in your mind, when you saw the Intrepid get hit, you thought it was done? I thought, definitely. I definitely said it's gone down, it's gonna go down. Uh, one kamikaze missed our ship and four of them hit the uh, Intrepid. As a matter of fact, after the war, I visited the Intrepid, right? But since I live in this neighborhood, I went to the Hudson River and I, I visited the Intrepid. What was it like to go back to the Intrepid uh, as a museum? It was eerie. It was eerie to see to see that day when I was a youngster, the, all those uh, the the, the uh, planes crashing into the Intrepid, and then coming back here to see it as a museum. That was something unbelievable. Where were you for the end of the war? At uh, the end of the war, we uh, we were coming back to America. We were coming back. Uh, 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 we, the war was over, but my ship just came back to San Francisco. And I, as a matter of fact, I took a train from Frisco to Chicago to New York to come home. And uh, I was through at that time. Do you remember where you were when you heard the news that Japan surrendered? Uh, we, you know what? It was, uh, it was in the Pacific somewhere. I, 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 I don't remember. What, what was it like on, on board when everybody, when it was finally over? Well, you know what? It, we had our routines. We didn't, we didn't celebrate or anything like that. We had, you had to, certain things that you had to do. We were all happy, of course, but it's, it, it's hard for me to remember exactly what happened. But uh, I know I was glad to serve for, uh, in the uh, in, in the navy, and I was proud to serve in the navy. Did you enlist or were you drafted? No, I was drafted. I was drafted. Uh, right, I had high school. I graduated from high school, and two months after that, I was drafted. I was in the Navy. But you say you were proud to serve. That how did it make you feel to know that you were contributing to saving the world? What What American doesn't feel the uh, honor? The, the, you know, it, it was an honor for us to do it. And I, I felt great that uh, we 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 got the forces of evil down, thank God. So I, I'm proud of that, I'm proud of my ship, the USS Vincennes, CL-64. There was another Vincennes that was sunk. Mine was the newer one. What was it like when you got home? I mean, did you did you live here, where did you grow up? Well, I, 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 I lived in the, in the Bronx at the time. And I, I got home and my, my parents and my, uh, my brothers and sisters were they were so overjoyed to see me, and I was—it was the happiest moment in my life. What, what, what did what did the family do to celebrate? Well, uh, the first thing is they cried. I cried, and uh, we we had you know we had pasta. My mother had pasta. I loved pasta. She was a great cook. Sean, we're on the theme of the Intrepid. Tell me about Ed Coyne, who is connected as well. Ed Coyne, ninety-four years old. Plainview, Long Island. He is an original Intrepid crew member. And he was on board the Intrepid 
when it was attacked by Kamikaze. So his first-hand account is harrowing. And he was a young guy at the time. Uh, when uh, when Pearl Harbor happened, uh, he talks about just how there was this unified spirit in the country. People were people were up in arms. And he said the next day, the recruiting stations, the lines were stretched down the block. Now, he wanted to sign up. He was a little young at the time. He tells a story. Uh, he really wanted to get into the military. He staged a hunger strike. Uh, so that his parents would uh, allow him to sign up early. So uh, they gave in when he was 17. They walked him down to the recruiting station, and, and they gave him permission to sign up for the military. So uh, he was uh, in the Navy, and uh, it was his job to fuel the airplanes. And he uh, recounts what happened when not just one kamikaze hit the Intrepid, uh, but uh, as they were trying to fight those fires, uh, a second one hit and uh, a very good friend of his was killed. Well, it came in, and it, you know, it flew over the destroyers and the cruisers and the battleships, and nobody hit it. We didn't hit it, and it flew in, and we made flew into the hangar deck. And we had crew members that, uh, what they call uh, fire control. They were fighting the fires, and another plane came in and flew in. And that's when we really lost a lot of people because they were fighting the fires and the uh, they were busy. Well, we were fortunate with the ship as far as it goes. Our planes were all up, so we were empty, and we weren't really loaded up with planes. They were all fueled up when we got hit. You know, so we had we had lots of fires and everything, but it wasn't half as bad as it would have been if we were loaded with planes on the ship. On a ship, you know, people would say, "You got to remember, we were we were young kids. A, a lot of the crew were a lot of young kids, and you were there. Times were different then. Attitudes were different then. We were attacked by a country. We didn't attack the country." So attitudes were altogether different, Sean. It's it's hard to explain if you weren't young at at that time. I would say like on on December 9th, I guess the 7th was a, I forget whether it was a Saturday or Sunday, but that Monday morning, the recruiting stations, it was lined up for blocks. <laughs> you know, you'd think they were giving away cars or something. It was so crowded. It, it, was, it, was, it was just, it was, it was an attitude. 
and love of her country. You know, you respected the the flag, you respected the president, you respected everything. I don't want to get on the soapbox. <laughs> Sean Joe Mongelli, tell me about him. Joe Mangelli is a is a dynamo. Uh, this man is a real inspiration, and I I, I love him. Uh, you know, the last time I saw him, I said, "How do you feel?" He said, "I feel great. I'm ready to rock." Joe Mangelli will be 100 in September. Uh, he still works. He he still has a job, and his passion. Uh, he was a submarine guy. His passion is the USS Ling. Uh, in Hackensack. The USS Ling, for people who are not familiar, it's a World War II era submarine and in, and for 40, 40 plus years or so it's been uh, a museum. Well, the hard luck Ling uh, is kind of stuck in the mud there in uh, the Hackensack and it, it has to move. The people who own the property, they want it to move. So there's a dedicated group of volunteers trying to find the Ling a new home. There's some young submarine uh, guys uh, today who are working on it trying to fix it pump out the flood water get the the engines going again and there is a plan to float it and bring it down the Hackensack get it under the bridges get it in a dry dock fix it up and then restore it to uh, become a museum once again possibly possibly in Hoboken Joe Mongelli is leading that charge and he is just he's just a bundle of energy uh, he served on the USS Lapon, a submarine in the Pacific. Uh, he has some amazing stories. You know, think about if you're claustrophobic, a submarine is not for you. Now, put yourself in that confined uh, little little uh, tube down under the ocean, and uh, you know, explosions are going off around you because depth charges are being dropped uh, as people are trying to uh, to kill you. He has uh, some amazing stories, and he was a, 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 it's his job to uh, fix anything mechanical. So he'll tell you he worked on the engines, he worked on the pumps, uh, he worked on the ice cream machine, which he said was very important to everybody on board. And there's one story he's going to tell where the submarine had a dive to get away from depth charges. They got stuck uh, in the mud. He said the mud, you know, the bottom of uh, the, the ocean where they were. And he had a rig a system to get them up again, and he did. And he'll also describe just what it's like when you're in a submarine and those uh, depth charges are going off. Um, he's got some great stories, and he also has a great lesson. You know, everything he went through, you know, convinced him uh, that war is, is never a good, good option. People really have to put you know, all of their effort into diplomacy, talk it out, work it out, and, you know, he's a peace-loving, understanding kind of a guy, and Joe Mangelli, uh, he's, uh, he's got a hundred years behind him, and I think we should all listen to him. When I was in uh, Manila Bay, we got pounded the heck out of us with depth charges, and we were stuck in the mud, nose down in the mud. We were in 210 feet of water. Now, we were there until the Japanese decided that they sunk us because we shut everything down, we went for silent running, and that's the way it was. We never moved in a boat, none of us, because they could pick you up with their sonar and they'll know we're still down there. So what happened is, when we found out that they left, we surfaced. And I asked permission from my skipper if I can cross-connect the trim system with the drain system. 
Now the trim system goes 7,500 cubic feet a minute of water. And if we got any object stuck in the system, it would go through the system, through the propeller, and through the propeller, through the vane, and up through the hump, and we would have sunk this up. So we managed to get that done, we righted the sub, and we got it there in one piece. Thank God for that. So you, you rigged the system so that you could get out of the mud? Right, absolutely. That's why they gave me a Navy unit accommodation, and for that six war patrol, they gave my skipper the Navy Cross. So if you didn't do that, the, the sub yeah, we, couldn't get out of the what would have happened if I didn't get do that. I don't know how long we would have been down there or what would have happened to so, us. So how did that work? How did what you do? Well, what I did was I pumped everything out of the forward ballast tanks. And I put the pump on and I pumped the other tanks that were forward of the center of the sub and lightened it up. It broke loose and come up like a cork. And we were on an angle of 67 degrees when we come up. <laughs> that was pretty hairy in Manila. That was pretty scary stuff. Do you remember any other times where it was very, it was, it was terrifying? Well, you mean when we got depth charge? Yeah. Many times. Don't forget, we did 26 ships we sunk. And every time we sunk a ship, there was a shore after us. And they pounded the living heck out of us. Not knowing how deep we went, we are still here. Thank God. What did it feel like inside the submarine? Well, we lost valves, we lost gauges, water came into the sub because you have a sea and stop valve for every compartment. We shut the watertight doors, put pressure in the boat to hold the water out, put a depth charge plug in it, beat it with a hammer, and come up, and then we pumped the boat out. But we had everything flying all over the place. Stuff off the bulkhead, the lights blew out, we had everything going on. But during the war, when you rig for silent running, and uh, what happens is you turn on, all your lights go off, every light in the boat goes off, you just have a red light on so you can see where you're going. But all submarine men could see where they're going anyway in the dark. That's how you qualify. You, uh, you talked about your buddies who were transferred to a, another vessel. What do you want people today to remember about, about your friends? The sacrifices that my brotherhood gave to the world and to save America. That's it. There was a better way to go, like I said. Negotiate. Why do you have to kill people? I don't care who they are. Killing is a no-no. It's against my religion. And I believe in God. And that's why I'm here. What lessons can young people today learn from, from your generation? Well, they can learn that we're all created equal, we all have to love one another, and there's nobody that's different from anybody else on the face of this earth. I don't care who you are, what nationality or what race, we're all the same, and God bless us all. And finally, Sean, uh, Bob Voucher. Tell me about him. Bob Vaucher, Bridgewater, New Jersey, 101 years old. He was a B-29 bomber pilot. And these guys suffered uh, tremendous losses. Um, they had dangerous missions. And when you think about flying over the Pacific, the, the, just the vast distances that they had to cover, a lot of times no place to land. It's just water, water everywhere. Uh, and, you know, talk about just a, a treacherous job. 
He completed 117 bombing missions, uh, com- combat missions, uh, and that includes uh, flights that he made uh, not just in the Pacific, um, but also I, th- I believe down in the Caribbean, and then uh, Panama Canal, and then into the Pacific. Uh, and he, he talks about some close calls. Uh, very lucky that they survived. Uh, you're going to hear just how you know. Really talk about just limping into an airfield. Uh, amazing, and he he recalls all of this with such calm. You can tell this guy had the right stuff to be a pilot, because he just seems to be unflappable. I have a job. Let's get it done. He has a a, a, a pretty impressive distinction. He was sort of he was present when the Japanese surrendered. Uh, he tells the story, his bomber, he was one of 525 B-29 bombers, a show of force flying over Tokyo Bay when the Japanese signed the instrument of surrender aboard the USS Missouri. Uh, this was, uh, uh, you know, uh, pageantry, a show of force uh, that MacArthur wanted, and uh, Bob Vosche was there. And we we couldn't have never made it back to uh, another thousand miles to home base because you were in a, in the in the Pacific. You weren't you weren't it wasn't land here or there. You could parachute out and maybe make your way back. Uh, if, if, they, if they hadn't taken Iwo Jima, I wouldn't be here. And on that day that I was saved, seventy-two B-29s were shot up so badly they had to land there. My airplane never flew again. They scrapped it. We counted 400 holes in it, and we quit counting. And we only had one injury on board, and that was for just a finger. One fellow got a finger almost cut off by shrapnel. Uh, and uh, But the airplane was, was beat up so badly it wasn't repairable. Uh, so uh, I got by uh, on some close calls (laughs) well you're here for a reason because of uh that amazing run you had i guess maybe that was part of the reason why uh, you were given the honor of flying over uh, when macarthur signed uh oh yeah 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 it was uh you know circumstances occur and, and they keep bouncing you a little higher and a little higher and and I ended up, I was 23 years old and a lieutenant colonel. And so uh, my highest rank I ever got to was, uh, was uh, a lieutenant colonel. But I was, wasn't old enough to be that, but I made it. <laughs> <laughs> and you flew And you flew over uh, when Japan surrendered? You flew over Tokyo Bay? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never see any reference to the fact that there were a lot of fighter airplanes flying around Tokyo Bay at the time of this ceremony. And there's never anything said about why. There were, within the higher command, there was knowledge that there were some Japanese units that were not happy about the surrender which is always true of any surrender. Uh, but the troops will say, and, and MacArthur knew this, 
in, in, in times past when they were just ground army, that there would be units that say, well, we shouldn't have ever surrendered. Uh, we should have fought on. And, and, and they hindered, hindered the surrender. These, the Navy put out about 150 fighters flying around Tokyo Bay to, to protect the ceremony. And, and they're always just indicated as airplanes there in, in, in uh, ceremony, but they were there uh, flying a combat mission, wow. actually. How many bombers flew over? I had 125 in my formation. That was a whole. That was a whole bomber fleet. Uh, what did I say? You said 125. 525. Say that again. Go ahead. 525 B-29s, right? MacArthur. When MacArthur said, "What am I? Am I repeating myself?" MacArthur said, "What am I going to do for a show of force?" LeMay said, I'll put every serviceable B-29 over Tokyo Bay when you sign it. And 525 was, was about every serviceable one because a, a, a quarter of your airplanes always were grounded because there was some malfunction or something or it was shot up or whatever it was. He had, he had six or seven hundred B-29s at his disposal, but only 525 got off to this affair. Wow. Uh, you know, teenagers, uh, young men in their early 20s, uh, they were called upon, you know, really to uh, to tackle, uh, you know, a, a daunting, uh, a daunting task. And what got them through it, you know, they'll tell you, uh, was each other. Uh, they they all speak uh, with this tremendous sense of patriotism. They were all united in the cause. Uh, our country was attacked. Um, you know, there there wasn't any debate or dissension. They all knew that something had to be done. And so I think that unity helped uh, get them through all of the, their toils uh, and, and uh, tribulations. You know, and uh, just. Uh, the, these men had quiet dignity. They really uh, come from a different time. You know, uh, you know, today's world is so fast-paced, and it's me, 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 what can I get? I want this, I want it now. You know, they grew up in, in a different time, a slower time, a time with, uh, you know, far less convenience. I mean, they were children of the Great Depression. They knew hunger. They knew deprivation. Uh, they knew whatever little they did get, you know, you appreciate it. And you don't complain. You just do what you have to do to get through. They weren't looking for a handout. They had tremendous work ethic. They really embody uh, the American spirit, hard work. You know, the what are you going to do to uh, make your situation better and help other people along the way? Uh, extremely patriotic. They answered the call. Their country needed them. You know, a lot of them, uh, you know, people were drafted, but a lot of them signed up. A lot of them volunteered. They were willing to sacrifice for the greater good. Do you think that their stories and what they've been through and the steel in their veins um, can help 
the current generations that are dealing with the trouble that we're seeing? Absolutely, because uh, when when you're in a tough situation, you know, there's a tendency to, to say, why me? Throw your hands in the air. But if you can see that, you know what, there have always been tough times, and other people have had it even worse, maybe. And if you have that perspective, and if you can listen to those voices of experience, and you can learn from what they did, you know, it, it, it kind of gives you a roadmap to get through your own problems. Uh, and uh, we're fortunate to have these uh, men still with us today to, to, to teach us these things. And one of the first things that you had me do when, uh, when the coronavirus uh, you know, really took hold and, and life just uh, came to a grinding halt. You said, I wonder if Chick Galella has any perspective for us. And so we reached out to Chick, and Chick's words were comforting and soothing. He said, yes, this is tough, but we will get through it. Better days ahead. you got to stick together. you got to do the right thing. We will get through this together. Terrific reporting, Sean. Thank you. And uh, to, to these men, we honor your service. And, um, and I would, you said it before, uh, any opportunity any of us get to say that to them in person, we ought to do that. Say thank you, buy them a cup of coffee, pay for dinner. Uh, they deserve it. Thank you, Sean. You're welcome. Awesome. This has been 880 In-Depth. My thanks to Sean Adams for his stories and his passion. 880 In-Depth is a weekly podcast. We invite you to share it. We ask you to subscribe to it. Just search for 880 In-Depth wherever you find your podcasts. If you served in the military, thank you for your service and be safe. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.